So I came across a, a blog post in my prep for this sermon that was written by a former pastor uh, who had walked out of his church because he woke up one Sunday morning uh, and suddenly realized that he just didn't think that he knew God at all. And so he set out on a journey to find him. And he began to sort of write this blog about all the ways in which you can meet God. But here's the important qualifier without going to church. All the ways you can meet him without going to church. At first, he says, he began to meet God in nature. He says, have you ever looked up into the night sky lost in wonder at the vastness of the universe? Have you ever lost your breath as you gaze at the beauty of the setting sun? Have you ever dived deep into the blue sea only to be met by the most dazzling array of colors of fish of every shape and size? The first time I truly met God was by standing on a beach in Fiji with the sun beating down on my back and nothing but the deep blue sea that met the horizon. Right then I knew that we are each called to be a caretaker of a land that has been so tenderly and lovingly made. For the first time, I could see God all around me. Hmm. Next time he said he met God was when he was watching, uh, listening to the radio. He says, I had messed up. I had let everyone down. And I was sitting in my bedroom when all of a sudden the words of Richard Marx's song, Waiting for You, came gently through the radio. <clears throat> Wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. Whatever it takes or how my heart breaks, I will be right here waiting for you. This moment was one of the most intense of my life. God was using the lyrics of Richard Marks to speak directly to me, to encourage me that it doesn't matter how many times I mess up and get things wrong. God will always be waiting there for me. Want to meet with God? Then turn on the radio and open your mind to the voice of God speaking to you loud and clear, speaking into your situation and sharing his wisdom through the words that you hear. Now, look, it is not my intention this morning to mock anything with someone who's going through, clearly going through something. But I simply want to highlight the fact that so oftentimes what passes for spirituality in our world is so explicitly disconnected from being with God's people. I mean, each of those examples that the author mentioned were experienced in complete isolation from anybody else. And so what, the, what that introduces into the mix is, I would say, an uncomfortable measure of subjectivity to the idea of meeting God. But what I want to set before you this morning is this simple idea that the more disconnected your meeting God is to tangible reality, the less real he will be to you. You know, for many, they really wish, I think, to have met with God, and yet nothing seems to happen. They spend all their life pining, and you begin to wonder whether it's actually possible to meet with him. Well, we've been looking this semester at the book of Exodus as the roots of of the creation of the people of God. And we now come to the moment when God actually shows up in our story the most vividly. You know, up until this time, he's sort of been a character in the background, kind of providentially ordering events. But now we're ready to meet him face to face. And what we find out is, is that in order to be the people of God, you have to have had an encounter with him. You know, Moses' experience of meeting God at the burning bush comes with characteristics that I would submit to your common to all Christians' experience of meeting God. And so I hope it's not too much to get you to ask the question this morning. Have you met God? Do you know him? 
in more than just sort of the vague feeling that might have, I don't know, washed over you while you were listening to a Richard Marx record or something. How can we know if we've met God? I think this passage gives us four insights to look at that I want to deal with one at a time. First of all, meeting God requires investigation. You know, we have poor Moses here, 40 years of regret and embarrassment, tending another man's flocks in a field. You know, so much for his heroic heroic quest to save these people, right? But in the fullness of time, he looks up and he sees something that doesn't make any sense to him. There's a bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up and it doesn't go out. In other words, he begins to see something that doesn't fit his present explanation of reality. And in verse 3, it really seems like the text is going out of its way to show that he felt like he needed to go check it out. I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now look, I I don't want to make too much of this point, but I do think it's very descriptive of what has to happen before someone meets with God. Because the Bible is just presumptuous enough to think of its own sort of absolute uh, truthfulness to suggest there's going to come a point in your life When stuff stops making sense and your life is going to come across something that your current sort of mode of explaining reality just can't account for. You know, life tends to work against simple categorization, doesn't it? And in order to sort of work your way through it, it's going to require us to investigate the matter. But how rarely we do so, how easy it is not to do so. Imagine an example for a moment. Let's say, let's say recently you flew off in a rage at your child or your spouse or family member or whatever. And, and it was more than just a little snap and you know it. You even had the sense enough to know that the thing that, you were, that, that, that set you off really wasn't that big a deal after all. Here's my question. How deeply are we willing to go into life experiences like that and say, What's going on with me? That that didn't seem to make any sense. How how am I thinking right now? What am I doing? Instead, we're like, oh, I must be awfully tired. Let's go binge another Netflix series or something. But look, the life of meeting God means that the people of God as they gather are a group of people who are known for thinking things through. You've heard me say that when the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about this sort of blind leap into some kind of a fabricated certainty. But what it means is, is we rarely ever take the time to answer these questions and to be introduced to what faith is. And and honestly, I'll pick on myself. I'm amazed at my capacity to sort of see, to, to fill my life with so much busyness that I never stop to think through the contradictions in my own life. i got a TV. I've got a computer. I've got some video games on my cell phone. I've got a wife and children and a job and books. And the list goes on and on. And so often I use those things to keep from being self-reflective. I was reading a blog post this week by a guy who introduced me to a term that I had never heard called content shock. And he defines it this way. He says, when exponentially increasing volumes of content intersect with our limited capacity to consume it, you get content shock. (laughs) I love that term. Get ready for that. I'm just going to show up again. Has there ever been a time in which more information is as available to as many people as we live in today? 
and, and, and actually, if you know me, you know I'm actually a fan of those ways of apprehending that information and the, what it can bring to us. But when that thing becomes the means by which I push out and away from simply asking myself the question, what am I doing? Then suddenly it becomes a bad thing. It's a hindrance to what it means to be the people of God. And, and let me put it this way very boldly, starkly. You'll never meet God if you don't stop and think it through. The life of faith is a life of thinking things through. Not irrational leaps into the dark, but a life of considering. A life of stopping long enough. Maybe, maybe think it, talking to a friend. Maybe joining a small group and saying, my purpose here is to sort of put in place the contradictions in my life that don't make sense today. And is it possible that one of the reasons why your life looks the way that it does this morning is because you're not taking the time to investigate the contradictions that come up every single day. So that's my first point, that in meeting God, it requires investigation, just like Moses. But number two, meeting God is like meeting fire. You know, fire is one of the favorite forms that God takes when he shows up in the Bible. This has already happened at this point, by the way, in Genesis chapter 15, when God appears to Abraham as a burning, smoldering pot as it passes through the pieces of the sacrifice. Later on, these exact same Jewish people that Moses is called to lead will be led through the wilderness at night by fire. Pretty soon, in just a few chapters, they're going to stand in front of this mountain called Sinai while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, and the whole thing is going to be on fire. And of course, if you go forward to the New Testament at the sort of day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down, what appears on the heads of all of the believing people when they're baptized by the Holy Spirit? Flames of fire. So there's so much behind this image that I think it deserves consideration. The reason why God appears as fire, I think, is because meeting God is both dangerous, but also really fascinating. Uh, my wife and I were, were surfing, speaking of distracting ourselves, <clears throat> and came across an old movie from the early 90s by Ron Howard uh, called Backdraft, which was a story of uh, firefighters and some drama that take place among firefighters. But I'm always amazed when I watch that show about how Howard sort of gives this personality to fire. And the cinematography really dramatically brings out the, the way in which firefighters often will wrestle against the pure fascination with fire. You know, it, it moves so elegantly and, and seems almost to breathe and moan to these firefighters. But the second that you get caught looking at it too long, you die, as many of the people in the movie do, actually. I mean, why do we build fireplaces and homes that already have central heat? Because we love to stare into a fire. And yet the moment that you think that you're going to be able to manipulate it, and you maybe try to do as much, I was going to show you real quickly who's actually in control. That's the nature of fire. And so look, without question, the first thing that you discover in the image of fire is what God warned Moses about when he got close. Moses, you need to sort of get reverent because you're standing on holy ground. The image of fire is the first moment in which you discover God's holiness. The word holy means to be set apart and unique and different. And so to meet God is, is to sort of suddenly realize that if what he says is true, then I'm in trouble. It, this God is not one that will be trifled with. 
Meeting God has, how about this way? Meeting God has a way of burning away anything that you brought into his presence to leverage favor from him. We, we talk this way all the time. You know, I'm, I'm going to go to God because I, I had a good week. I'm going to go God because I don't believe that the treatment I'm getting is fair. I don't deserve this. I go to God because I deserve better circumstances. But to meet the holy God, the three times holy God, it burns it away. All of those excuses start to feel really lame. That's the reason why Moses is even afraid to look at it because you can't stare at this God for simple raw fear. In other words, you realize that you've met God when you suddenly wake up to the fact that you cannot manipulate him. You're unable to do so. Phil Riken thinks that this is what's at the heart of what God means when he reveals to Moses his name, which is a strange name. I am that I am. Riken says, you can mold clay and wood and stone, but fire molds you. <laughs> That's the order. You don't act upon it. It acts upon you. And what's interesting is that once you kind of get this little notion in your head, you're going to find how strange it is to hear how people often talk about God. <laughs> you get phrases like, well, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would such and such. Or, you know, the God I believe in just wouldn't act like that. But if you stop to consider for a moment that when we speak that way, it's as if we're admitting that what I say as God is just kind of a wish projection of my own desires that I've made him in my image and fashioned him in what I would like him to be. We have a God of our own making when we talk that way. But when you meet the real God, you meet the great I am. God is saying to Moses, Moses, you don't create an image of me. I make you in my image. You don't fashion me into something that's comfortable for you. You'll relate to me on my terms and my terms only. But notice that despite all of this, despite all of that, God still invites Moses in. Alec Motier sees a kind of an interesting dilemma uh, that comes in the invitation to come forward in verse 4, but then in verse 5, to not come too close. You know, how are you going to put those two verses together? This is, this is a giant gospel question. How do you get verse 4, which is like, come on, Moses, and verse 5, which is like, but be careful as you do? How will you put those two together? Because you, when you meet God, you see that his holiness has this way of making you feel like you're undone. To use the word of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. But at the same time, you want nothing more than to know this God. He is profoundly fascinating and sublime. But he is unfathomably dangerous as well. In a word, fire. So meeting God requires investigation. Secondly, it, meeting God is like meeting fire. But thirdly, meeting God brings out the worst in you. And so here's Moses. You know, he's invited in, but he's terrified even to look. And what does this do to him? Well, honestly, he starts one of the most embarrassing whining sessions that you have almost throughout the entire Bible. It's incredibly entertaining to read. Verses 1, verses 10, and verses 13 in chapter 4 are just downright pathetic especially when you realize what an incredible prophet Moses went on to become. Uh, there's a Jewish uh, uh, a general editor for Slate magazine, uh, David Plotz, actually used to be, was about 10 years ago. 
But a number of years ago, he did this uh, a summer series where he decided, as a good Jewish person, that he wanted to read through the Old Testament. And he wrote about it as he did in a series of fascinating blog posts. And on, honestly, oftentimes uh, hilarious as well. Well, his comment on this little exchange between God and Moses while he's trying to send him out, he says this. He says, this is the most profound encounter between a man and his maker. At the same time, it feels like nothing so much as a discussion between an enthusiastic, over-eager father and his extremely sullen teenage son. No offense, teenage sons out there, right? God would have smitten any other human who tried him so, but he merely rebukes Moses. But this doesn't deter the vexatious prophet. If he lived in the... If he lived in the 21st century, this is the point when Moses would be showing God two doctor's notes diagnosing chronic fatigue syndrome. Five times Moses finds these excuses to sort of weakly hand to God, ending with this ultimately wimpy thing, could you just send somebody else? And yet God is not uh, happy with this. Uh, I actually looked it up. Verse 14 that you have there in chapter 4 if you literally translate that verse, it says, the nostrils of Yahweh burned. And I don't have any idea what that means, but it's not good. <laughs> but this is man's response to the revelation in the fire. Moses is both invited in and yet terrified. And at that moment, what comes gushing out of him is every single human insecurity you could think of. In other words, you will know that you have met God when your inadequacy starts to pour out of you. you know, standing in the presence of God is to stand alone, emptied, and humbled. But as it turns out, this is precisely the moment where God deals with our emptiness. Look, don't miss this. God did not deal with Moses whining the way in which our mamas used to. And, and God bless mamas. This is no offense against mamas. But we went to our mamas and we said, hi. I just don't feel like I'm adequate. And she was like, no, you're wonderful. God doesn't deal with him that way. Nor does he sort of wave this magic wand over Moses and instantly turn him into a prophet. Actually, he doesn't even rebuke his insecurities. What does he give him? He gives him his adequacy. Listen again to Alec Motier. He says, the Lord had not solved Moses' problems by changing Moses either inwardly in feelings or temperament or outwardly in terms of his effectiveness. The whole intent that the Lord had been was in an entirely different direction. Because when Moses was faced with his vocation to bring the people, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt, his reaction was, I can't, so I won't. But God sought to bring him to the point where he could say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. That, Motir says, is the obedience of faith. Okay, that was a big one. You've got to see this point. And I know that I've been fixated on this lately, and I guess I apologize for that. But it really is such a fascinating experience to ask someone about their spiritual life. So much so that I would, I would invite you to find a family friend who won't be so annoyed by your intrusion to do this question. Ask them the question, how was it that the Lord found you? And what oftentimes happens is how quickly people whip out that spiritual resume. Well, I'm reading my Bible. I'm an officer in the church at a very early age. We're in small groups. Everything comes out of sort of establishing for myself all of these things. But I kind of want this to concern us. Actually, to concern us deeply because anyone who ever truly met God in the Bible 
always expresses that meeting in terms of their emptiness. But when all you get is a testimony about someone's competence, you kind of have to wonder, did you really meet this God? Look, to meet God is to be brought into faith. And I know it's so confusing to understand exactly what we mean by faith. But so rarely do we see people in the Bible struggling with that. You want to know why? Because to meet God is to be brought into faith. To meet him is to discover that he is adequate to meet your needs, that we're all uncovered in the fires of his holiness. It's the promise that Moses has to now rely upon, not upon anything in him. And if we've not come to that point, have we really come to faith? You know, years later in John chapter 8, there was a religious leader named Jesus who was arguing with sort of an upstart religious teacher. And at one point in the conversation, he says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And they all decided it was time to kill him. Why? Because he was claiming to be God. Jesus at that moment is saying, I am the one who was in the bush. There there is no was for me. You can never use the word was for my existence. And while I was there, I was bearing witness to Moses of my adequacy in the midst of his inadequacy. But the life of a person who has met God and looked intently into what God says that he or she is supposed to be has looked and said to God, Lord, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But the answer from the fire is, I am, I am, I am. This is the only hope that a whiner has to know this fiery God is if there is a mediator, if there's a go-between. So God, meeting God requires investigation, and it's like meeting fire, and it brings out the worst in you. But lastly, meeting God sends you out on a mission. I think Tim Keller is right. God only calls you in when he can send you out. Because this whole episode with Moses was so that he could commission him to go and release people from slavery. Even from the very beginning of those verses in verse 7 and 8, God tells Moses that he intends to bring his people into the joy that he promised so long to Abraham. He looks and says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. You see what he's doing? He's recalling the promises of the covenant. The last of which was that they would be a blessing to the nations because of his chosen people. In other words, finally, you can tell that you've met this God Because you begin to get a heart for his total program, which is a worldwide global healing. And as it turns out, this is actually where God is doing most of his working in the world. You know, over and over again, spend some time talking to people who have invested themselves for a time into just helping others. You know, they have remarkable experiences because it starts with maybe like the smallest amount of time maybe the smallest amount of money that they invest. Uh, Maybe they get to know somebody that's a little bit hard to love, but pretty soon they'll come back and tell you that they were overwhelmed by the size of the need. There's no way we'll cover this all. But eventually they start doing these irrational things, like giving up their weekends to go and serve these people. And somewhere along the way, they'll actually report to you that they love these folks and that somehow they don't look at it like it's service anymore. It's just a joy. Chris Arnade was a, a, a Wall Street hack who decided one day <clears throat> that he lived too much of a cushy life. And so he decided to dive into the neighborhoods of New York City in search of meaning. 
And while he was there, he saw you know, living conditions among some of the hardest living people, whom he nicknamed Backrow America. And he learned a lot on his quest, but the most surprising thing that he said that he learned was the consistency of these people's faith. And of course, as an avowed atheist, he kind of condescendingly decided that, you know, though I don't believe one word of Christianity is true, I guess maybe it's useful, you know, to help these people get off the streets or something like that, feel better about their lives for a little bit. But over time, the consistency of the lives of these people he began to work with, it began to work on him until he writes this in the last line of an article that he wrote for First Things Magazine online. He says this, he says, on the streets, very few people can delude themselves into thinking that they have it under control. You cannot ignore death there and you cannot ignore human infallibility. It's easier to see that everyone is a sinner, that everyone is fallible and everyone is mortal. It's easy to see there that things are just too deep, too important and too great for us to know. It's far easier to recognize that one must come to peace with the idea that we don't and never will have this life under control. And then he says, it's far easier to see religion, not just as useful, but as true. Now, how did that happen to him? Interestingly enough, it wasn't through a clever argument. (laughs) It's because he went down and he sat down with the people that God called him to serve. And suddenly he met God. God takes the tiniest of our motions towards him. He humbles us in the face of his majesty and awe. And then he draws us near through the heart for the brokenhearted and the hurting. But somewhere in there, we discover joy. Look, here's the reason why I'm talking about this, that Moses experience here at the burning bush was actually going to be mirrored by his people just weeks later as they left Egypt. And what I take from that is... <laughs> is that the way in which those people were going to meet God was as they appeared before Yahweh as a people, as a group, as as a body. And what that means to me is that there's simply no reason why that same thing can't happen here. Even on a morning like this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that uh, you would answer that longing. Father, there's plenty of contradictions in our lives right now that we haven't even thought about until this morning when we got still enough and quiet enough to think on it. Father, we're afraid. We know what it means to acknowledge that you're there because you might come in and mess things up. You might reorder our desires. You might have to break us of things that we know are destructive. Father, we also admit that we want that so badly. And so we need the mediator this morning. We need the one from the fire to come and speak to us and say that you will put those words in our mouths. You will come and bear up with your adequacy the things that embarrass us. And Father, in so drawing us in, we pray that we would see your face in the hurting all around us and make us a group of people that serve those people with joy because you planted it there. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.